Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 76th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Stephanie Manning, Director of Platform at Lyra Hippo, which is the most active seed investment firm in the New York tech scene. Let's face it, jobs in venture capital are very scarce, yet they are highly desirable. There are different roles that make a VC operate, and the path into one of these positions isn't very clear. Stephanie and her colleague Isabel Phelps recently published a blog series which helps to bring transparency to the topic of landing a job in venture capital. My conversation with Stephanie is focused on this exact topic where she shares so much useful information and advice. So if you're interested in pursuing a role into venture capital, hopefully this discussion will help put you on a path to achieve your goal. Here's a list of the topics we will cover. Stephanie's background and her journey into the venture capital industry, how she got involved with Lara Hippo and how her role has evolved over time the different types of roles between investment and platform, advice on how to get your foot in the door and what the interview process may look like, details on how the compensation piece of the equation may be structured, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, VentureFizz now has a YouTube channel where you can find the full video of this podcast discussion, plus lots of other interviews and pieces of advice from the top entrepreneurs and investors in our industry. Just search for VentureFizz in the search bar on YouTube and you'll find us there. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Stephanie. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me today, Keith. So we're going to go very deep into the venture capital industry today, which I'm super excited about. I think it's an area that so many people have interest in as far as joining a firm, but it's not really well known of what's the path, how do you get there, what are the different roles? So I'm excited to get into some you know, great level of detail about that, that exact, you know, those exact questions. But to start off, let's talk about you. So let's go back, like, like where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Uh, so I grew up in a suburb of New Jersey, so not too far from New York. I call myself an East Coaster for life. Uh, me as a child, Definitely depends what phase we're talking about. I was a tomboy through a lot of elementary school, always playing sports, always wanting to like be tough and hang out with the guys. And then I think as I grew in middle school and high school, lost some of the tomboyishness, but definitely continued to play sports. It was a big part of my life. Um, So always kind of worked well in teams. Which sports did you play? I played soccer and lacrosse. So those were my two main sports. And then during the off seasons, played with club teams and continued to be in training throughout. I also would be remiss if I didn't mention that I'm a huge sleepaway camp person, went for eight years, and I think it definitely shaped my life and my leadership skills. I continue to see my camp friends. So huge part of my life that I think definitely helped shape me to be the person I am. I was definitely throughout high school, I would say a leader. And I think a go-getter probably describes my personality best. So I would probably say not much has changed. I was class president of my high school. I played varsity soccer as a freshman. So my mom at my wedding a couple months ago actually joked, you know, Stephanie, when she was younger, if she wanted something, she got it. So um, definitely a driven young person, I would say. That's awesome. And then why did you decide to, uh, to go to Colgate? Um, so I was all over the place with my college application process. I thought I wanted to go to a really big school. I thought I wanted to go to a liberal arts school. I wasn't quite sure, um, but landed on Colgate mostly because of the community aspect of it. At first, when I was targeting the large schools, I thought they would be fun because of the sports aspect of it, um, but soon realized that I really enjoy knowing every a lot of the people around me. I enjoy having close relationships with students and professors, so knew I would find that at a smaller school, um, and Colgate really seem to be a great fit for that. Yeah, it's a great school, no doubt. 
Uh, how about uh, first job out of college? What did you do coming out of undergrad? So I was a little all over the place with that process as well. I was interviewing at marketing firms, some of the banks, consulting companies. Tech wasn't a huge thing at Colgate at the time. It was either you went into consulting, banking, nonprofits, or grad school. So when I came across a job description at a company called AppNexus, which a lot of people know of now, um, I was really intrigued by the opportunity in the company. So joined the AppNexus campus recruiting team right out of school and was there for two and a half years during a time that was also really interesting for the company. We grew from 300 people to 1,100 people. Wow. So I really got to see what happens at a startup when you go from startup to mid-sized company, which was a really awesome experience. And, and it's there where you kind of learned the, the whole trade of, of recruiting and, and talent acquisition. Yeah. So I was able to learn, you know, the tactical pieces of recruiting, um, did a lot of program management as well. But I think the overarching takeaway from that experience was how important people are to an organization and how important it is to have buy-in from the senior most people to really build and invest in your people um, because without them, a company really can't grow. Right. Now, we're going to talk about you know your journey into venture, right? So obviously at, at this point, this is kind of like the the breaking point where you ended up in in the venture capital community. So you were relatively you know what two three years out of school, and then you ended up at, at Workbench. So how did that all come together in terms of you know and what was your initial role at Workbench? So as I was nearing two and a half years at AppNexus, I was asking what else is out there. And I didn't want to get pigeonholed into campus recruiting, so did a really broad job search and came across a role at Workbench. I can't even tell you what search I put into Indeed that landed me to come across the role, but there was a role titled Community Associate. And from reading more about the job description, it actually aligned really well with the skills and expertise I was building at AppNexus. So Workbench was looking for a community associate with a background in community building. I had that from working with our interns and full-time hires, uh, program management, which aligned to what I was doing, events. I was doing a ton of those on campus, in the office. And then also they were looking for someone with a talent background. So it was weirdly this like cosmic connection. I was like, this aligns great to what I'm doing. So I actually bypassed the interview um, process that they outlined, which was a little, I think, ballsy of me in the beginning, um, <laughs> to say the least. But I was just so excited about the role and I wanted to explain more as to why I thought I was such a great fit. So sent an email to their general contact email, kind of laid out the four buckets that they were looking for, align them to what I was doing at AppNexus and land an interview there shortly after. So that was kind of the transition process. Um, and once I got a job offer from them, knew it was a really unique opportunity to work with many startups um, in the VC space. And, and did the role evolve at all while you were there? Like were you in, in different, different positions or was it pretty much continuous, you know, the same role? The role definitely evolved. I would say the company evolved while I was there. So Workbench started more as a community hub and co-working space for enterprise tech companies and an accelerator really. Um, and as I was interviewing, that was really their transition point to we're going to lead with we're a venture firm uh, because they had a $10 million fund that they were investing out of. So that was really unique in that my role, I think, focused more on our investment companies versus just community companies. Um, but, you know, looking at just my role, 
during, at, uh, during my time at the company. I started as a community associate, kind of this broad events, community, some op stuff, talent. And then as I was there, really started to dig in specifically on the talent stuff. So not only was my background there, but it was something that the firm wasn't doing. And this is something we can definitely get into more later as mm-hmm. you know, what is the value of having a talent person for a venture firm? Yeah. And for Workbench, enterprise sales hiring, enterprise marketing hiring. It's really tricky for enterprise startups and it's sometimes a make or break. So they really wanted someone to build out expertise in what should our talent function look like? What should we offer our companies talent wise and how do we execute on that? So because of that, my, you know, as I got promoted during my time there, my title shifted to include the talent piece. Um, So it became, I became a talent and community manager, um, which I think a big takeaway and a really important thing for people to think of as they're moving through their careers is what title do you need to really succeed in your role? So whether it's how do you get the right meetings with people? How do you get the right buy-in from folks? How do you kind of get in front of the people you need to get in front of? And I, what I was realizing is if I wanted to connect with the top talent people at other firms and I wanted our portfolio companies to come to me with their talent questions, I needed my title to reflect that more. So um, that's definitely how my role evolved as I was there. Great. And now you're at Lara Hepo and you know, how, how did you make the transition to, to that firm? And um, what, what's the details on, on your first role and obviously how that has evolved uh, at your current firm? Definitely. So I came across the role at Lara Hippo a gentleman who was actually working at the firm had reached out to me. Uh, We were part of this broader VC platform community group that was started in New York City. And he said, hey, love what you're doing at Workbench. We're actually hiring for this person to oversee our platform role, our platform team. Are you interested in interviewing? So Blair Hippo was always, you know, on my radar as one of the top firms in New York. Um, What I learned through the interview process and what I know now is Blair Hippo is the most active early stage investor in New York, which is why I think they also have such a great brand and they're invested in some of the best, most well-known companies. So um, when I had the opportunity to interview, I definitely took it. And for me, I was really excited to work with companies across all categories. So continuing to work with enterprise companies like I did at Workbench, but expanding that to consumer tech, e-commerce, digital media. So that was kind of the impetus for the move. I joined Lair Hippo in April 2017. So I've been here for almost two years now. And my role here has definitely evolved. My title is director of platform, can mean different things to different firms, but really my job is to oversee all of our post-investment support and services for our portfolio companies. Um, So definitely, I think the biggest change to my role has been I was able to hire two people onto my team, um, Natalie, who runs all of our content and brand, and Amanda, who runs all of our talent and recruiting. And I think that's really enabled us to build a much more robust offering in each of those sectors. So I alone wasn't able to recruit for all of our companies and make sure our social media is up to date and create amazing content to share and build our brand. So really having those two people has enabled me to focus on other things such as how do we build our network? How do we think about an executive in residence program? How do we think about corporate engagement and development for our companies? Um, So I think bringing them on has definitely been the biggest change in my role. Well, let's, let's talk about VCs broadly. Yeah. So um, what, are, what are the different types of firms, right? Because there's, uh, you know, different stages of investments that some firms will make, or maybe there's industry alignment. alignment. So if you, 
if you could just describe kind of the, the VC industry as a whole, the different types of firms, that, that would be helpful. I would definitely say there are more and more firms popping up what feels like every day. The biggest way that I personally decipher the VC industry and the different firms is one by stage. So different firms invest at different times. Lair Hippo is definitely well known for seed stage, early stage investments. You have some firms that won't come in until the Series B, Series C. And then also I think about industry or sector. So Workbench is a great example of a firm that only looks at enterprise tech. That's kind of their bread and butter. They go deep in categories such as security and artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, whereas Lair Hippo, is invest across all categories. So about 50% of our portfolio is enterprise and 50% is consumer tech, e-commerce, digital media, et cetera. Um, so we really look at all companies across all industries. Um, so those are really, for me, the two things. And then you can also think about location. So some firms, some firms invest only in US-based companies, some firms, Primary Ventures is a great example of a New York-only firm. So I think those are really the three big categories to think about when you think about what, how do VC firms differ. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely uh, very true. And then there's even like the corporate VC arms that um, you know, are just you know, representing the company and investing their dollars into relevant industries that they're aligned with. Definitely. Now, what, what about the roles in a venture capital firm? Now, Again, you know, we're talking broadly, there's different firms that have different roles or different structures, but, uh, you know, generally speaking, what are the different roles in a VC firm? I, I think it's important to think investment side and platform side, because I think the roles and especially titles you see vary, but also with the caveat that all titles vary by firm. Um, so, but I think the way to think about it is you see the investment side, they're mostly responsible for sourcing, due diligence on companies, relationship management with founders after you invest, sometimes sitting on boards, being board observers. Um, and the way you kind of see the progression of that role is most folks will come in as an analyst, move up to an associate, senior associate principal slash VP, I would say is probably level. Some firms view one as a more senior role. Some firms only have one. So at Lair Hippo, we don't have that VP area of the you know, investment team progression. It goes from senior associate to principal to partner. And then you have some variation of managing partner um, type role, which is really the person whose name is on all of your filings for when you're raising funds, they're writing the checks. Um, so that's kind of the investment side. And then the platform. Can I ask you a question about the investment side? Yeah. So the, the, um, I've noticed a lot of the, like the associate and principal roles, it's almost like they're like uh, signing up for two years. It's like a two year position at some firms. Like, is that, is that common where, you know, maybe you continue on with the firm after that two year commitment, but maybe you go off and start your own company or join, you know, a, a portfolio company or something. Some firms do that, and I think a lot of those firms make it very clear in the job description. This is a two-year opportunity, and then our hope is that you go on to operate at a portfolio company or go to another venture capital firm that we're friendly with. I can speak to the Lair Hippo team, and that's actually not the case. When we hire people, it's for hopefully the long run. Um, so I think that really varies from firm to firm, but I think it's usually upfront in the job description so people know this has a two-year shelf life. Got it. Okay. Now, how about the platform side? So the platform side, there is much more variation in title. I think 
the two ways to think about platform roles are one, really broad platform roles like the role I came into at Lair Hippo and more function specific roles like the role Amanda's in for talent and Natalie is in for branding content here. So I think you see people with these general director of head of platform network development we actually went through an exercise at one of these vc platform summits that we hosted and i think there are about 80 people in the room and there was very little overlap in title so i think it's kind of one of those this is the first time we're hiring for the role you tell us what you want the title to be what kind of buy-in do you need some people in platform roles focus only on business development or only on talent so their titles will correlate, but I think those roles almost tie more closely to a startup hierarchy. So you can have analysts, associates, managers, senior managers, directors, senior directors, head of VP, um, but with much variation in VP of X, um, depending on what firm and kind of what function you're specializing in. And is there a common thread, like since you're, you know, obviously um, talking to a lot of the other people in these platform roles, is there common functionality that these that the platform is playing within the VC community? Definitely. I think, and you know, this is something that we try to create a big image for because a lot of people are still unclear of, okay, I get that. I get that there's this role platform, but what do you actually do? So at Lair Hippo, we kind of think of it in six major buckets. And I actually think this is the six buckets that most firms um, kind of abide by when it comes to their platform team. So you have talent, that's everything from recruiting services, HR consulting, executive search, business development, that can be corporate development, demo days, doing BD for your portfolio companies. Um, marketing and communications is a third bucket. So that can be everything from marketing and communications for the firm itself, which is what we do a lot of. So that's our social media, our daily newsletter, our original content, our PR, but you can also think about it as marketing communications for your portfolio companies. And some firms have that. Um, they have a PR person who does PR for their portfolio companies. We also have a fourth bucket that I kind of title community and network. So that's everything from peer groups, executives and residents, advisor networks, external events that you're hosting, mentorship programs. You have operations. So that's really a lot of the tools that you're using to either connect the people in your community, your founders, what CRM systems, how do you track your vendors. Um, some folks focus on fundraising and LP relationships under that operations umbrella. And then the last bucket is events. So that's everything from CEO summits that you host, annual LP meetings, founder networking events, workshops that you're hosting. So every variation I would say has one of these six underlying major functions. Got it. Okay. That's, that's helpful to break it down that way. Yeah. Now, what is, why is this like been this emergence of the platform within the venture community? Like I remember, you know, so I've been in the tech industry for 20 somewhat years and I remember, you know, some firms, maybe some of the larger firms had like a, you know, a VP of talent um, that was kind of like their executive search function. Like it was just like one person in the firm that would be helping with maybe CEO hires at some of their portfolio companies. But the uh, emergence of this platform is so much broader in terms of what you do. And so what, what is the value that you think the platform is creating for the portfolio companies, the VC firm itself? And, and why is it something that we're seeing so much more of these days? 
I think there are different renditions of this. I think some people believe that the emergence of platform has really hit its stride in the last five to seven years. And I think there are some people who say platforms actually been around for a while, ever since the early days of Andreessen um, and First Round and some of these other firms that are much larger and definitely more focus in Silicon Valley. Um, I personally think there are three major drivers behind the rise of platform and why it's becoming more popular. I think one as portfolios themselves grow. So Lair Hippo is going to be 10 years old next year. Um, so maybe in the early days, it was easy for the partners and the investment team to manage the operations of all of the founders, make introductions that are necessary. But I think as firms grow, the investors can't be as hands-on with support. Um, they're focusing their time on due diligence and investing in new companies and sitting on boards of companies. So I think for the more tactical things, the platform is really important to operationalize, systematize kind of the support that you do for all your companies. I think the second reason is money, I think has become more popular and more available than ever. There are so many firms for great founders. It is that I should definitely caveat with that. Um, but so I think if founders are getting offers from various VCs, I think they're asking what other support can you provide me with in addition to financing. Some founders really value talent help. Some founders really value business development help. So I think having a built out offering for those things on the platform is definitely valuable. And then I think the third reason is you have these old school firms who will always have a great reputation and brand. They've invested in great companies that have done well, but you have these new firms emerging that I think in order to differentiate and build their brand platform offerings can be a really great way to differentiate. Yeah. No, I mean, you brought up Andreessen Horowitz and they were, at least from my recollection, the first firm that like almost institutionalized the platform of, you know, having this services based team that was supporting with sales, user experience, products, uh, recruiting, you know, they had a whole talent, like a, a very large team supporting portfolio companies on, you know, talent acquisition. So um, it, I, I think they kind of set the stage for what has now evolved into what other firms are recognizing as a true value add for their portfolio. Definitely. Now let's talk about actually getting into a VC firm. So you actually, you know, we walked through your journey of how you got from A to B, but uh, you know, is there any commonality of people that get into the venture community in terms of their backgrounds? I, again, lots of different schools of thought here. My personal opinion and what I've seen most recently is I think there used to be this, if you went to Stanford or Harvard or you were in investment banking and then you got your MBA, that was the perfect track to venture capital. I think that with the emergence of so many new firms with different specialties, it's really started to vary. So I actually see the path to VC through startup operating to be a more popular path now. So that doesn't mean you have to have been a founder of a company and sold your company. That means you have to be able to sit across from a founder and say, I know what it's like because I did this because I ran business development at this company and went from $10 million in ARR to $100 million in ARR. Or I know what it's like because I built people teams at a company that went from 300 people to 1,000 people. So while I do think this operating experience has become more prevalent throughout VC's backgrounds, I can't say that that is the only path to VC. Um, we actually cover this a lot in one of our blog posts, which is, I think, the, one of the most important things to read is like, 
four questions you should ask yourself before figuring out like that you want to pursue a path to venture. So that's figuring out, do you want to go into an investment or platform role? Is an early stage fund a better fit for you or a later stage fund? Is there a specific area of investing that you're interested in? What kind of team culture are you looking for? So I think once you kind of go through the, those questions, you can more, you can better target your path to VC and figure out how your background might be a fit. Now, the VC firms, in terms of the structure, we talked about the investment and the, the, the platform side, but um, you know, most VC firms still operate fairly lean, right? Even though they're providing this platform and in, in different levels of um, you know, add-on capabilities, but um, you know, it's not like VC firms have, you know, a whole army of people that are supporting the fund. It, it just seems like a lot of them operate pretty lean. I would agree with that. I always say to folks who are interested in getting into VC, I think it's all about timing because VCs don't scale the way startups do. They're not going to hire 10, 20, 30 people in a year. They're going to hire one, if that, um, maybe two or three over the course of a couple years. So I definitely agree VCs are lean and they just don't hire very often. And so when, when is that timing usually? Is it like just close the new fund, we're probably gonna add some more partners, associates, platform. Like, is that usually a good indicator of, of hiring? I think that can be a good indicator. More raising a new fund means more management fees, means more money to kind of put back into the team and headcount, but that's not the only time. I think we also see when someone needs to backfill. So if someone's leaving, that's a lot harder to identify than a fundraises. Um, and when someone's looking to kind of build a new team or function. So I think in this platform space, when I hired Natalie um, to my team at the end of 2017, we hadn't, you know, we fundraised in mid-2018, mid but there was a clear need for someone for that role. So that was something where I had connected with Natalie a couple of weeks before we actually started officially hiring. Um, so I think it's really all about timing in so many different ways. So we've pretty much now set the stage that there's only like so many positions in venture capital and there's probably a large volume of people that are interested in these different positions. So what's the best way to get your foot in the door, like to actually capture, you know, a firm's attention initially? Um, I think there are different ways to go about it. We talk about this too in our blog series. Isabel writes a lot about how to get noticed as an investment associate or if that's the path you're looking for. So that can be everything from sourcing and sending great deals that you come across to people you know at VC firms. Um, being able to create a voice, I think, is really important. So if you're interested in a specific area, start writing about it, start tweeting about it. I actually think real relationships are made on Twitter and that's where a lot of VCs are spending their time. So I always encourage people, start talking about things that you're interested in. Um, and then also if you are no great candidates, if you know great advisors and you can kind of help connect folks to VCs, I think playing the role of a VC before you're a VC is a great way. It's not a guaranteed way. And I wouldn't advise anyone to like kill themselves and work for free basically. Um, but I think it's definitely a good way to network your way in more than just, hey, do you have 30 minutes to get coffee with me so I can pick your brain? It's like, what can you add? Um, how can you add value to that person? Um, so that's one way. I think on the platform side and even the investing side too, I think going to events and meeting people is a great way. So there are a ton of events. I think New York is a great city to kind of be in that position and kind of go to 
many different tech events. There are meetups, there are dinners, there are panel events, and a lot of them that are open. So for this too, I encourage people to go to Twitter to check this out. I think at least for Atlair Hippo, whenever we're co-sponsoring an event or speaking at an event um, or attending an event, we're always tweeting about it and talking about it. So that kind of gives people the opportunity to meet with us in person. Um, so those are definitely some things I suggest people do. And then there's always the suggestion of reach out to people in your network, ask for their time and kind of get on their radar. I don't love that answer because that, is, that means only people who have the network can get into VC. And I think that has been an issue for quite some time. So I kind of really like the ideas of what can you do if you don't have the network and how do you start building the network? But once you do know someone, ask for their time ask really good questions, but do your research ahead of time. So if you know someone's an early stage investor, don't ask them what it's like to be a growth stage investor. If you know someone only focuses in the enterprise space, don't come you know, asking about consumer type products. I would encourage people to do their homework, but also follow up to stay on people's radars because VC jobs are all about timing. You wanna make sure that you're continuing to stay top of mind. And I always say that if someone isn't in a startup operating role, I think considering that path as well can be a great step into VC. And if you're connecting with a VC, maybe their portfolio companies are a good fit for you. And if you can be a great operator at one of their portfolio companies, that could set you up to potentially join their team um, later on when the time is right. Now, since VC firms are only hiring like you know just one or two people a year, maybe. Um, like I would imagine the interview process must be pretty rigorous, um, you know, like regardless of level of role. Definitely. I can at least speak to, you know, what we do at Lair Hippo. And I think for us, the most important thing we look for when we're interviewing is team fit and ability to work well with everyone across the team. We're a pretty flat organization and also a very collaborative team everyone works hand in hand in one way or another. So we actually have most people meet with everyone on the team. Um, but I think the interview process definitely looks different for investment side, platform side, especially when you start getting into those functional um, parts of platform. Now, the other thing that I think people maybe not don't have a clear understanding about is, you know, salaries in VC firms. Like, you know, I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, the partners obviously bringing in deals and they're obviously partners in the fund, right? So uh, I would imagine that they're, you know, the ones that are, um, you know, they're obviously, you know, creating the most, you know, the highest salary or earnings, uh, but other positions in a VC firm, like, I don't know if it's as understood what people earn in a VC firm. I think numbers really range, and I think the biggest driver behind the, your compensation is the fund's total AUM, which is assets under management. If you have a firm that has billions of dollars in assets under management, and they're taking 2% management fees and putting some of that back into the business to invest in people, provide salaries, that's a lot more money to spread around than a $10 million fund has. And I think that's kind of why you see leaner teams for smaller funds, bigger teams for bigger funds. So that's definitely a big driver to consider. I think in general, a lot of people on the outside view VC as a super lucrative business, which it is. Uh, in the macro sense, I think funds are getting great returns, LPs are getting great returns, and managing partners are. Um, but I, I don't think that people under that managing partner level are taking home what 
you know, people may think they are. Um, but I think another thing to think about when it comes to salary is both your salary in terms of a base and bonus, but in VC, it's also carry. So are you getting some type of carry in the fund, which is when the fund returns itself, a firm will usually have, you know, 20% of that, um, will become carry and then people on the team will get a percentage of that 20%. So that's a question to ask while you're interviewing. Do you get carry? What is the carry? How does that change over time based on position, promotions, things like that? So whenever I'm chatting with someone who is interviewing for a VC, I always ask them to make sure that that question is addressed during the final stages of the process. That's a great insight. That's because I think a lot of that, like people just have no idea like, oh, okay. So uh, you're obviously doing a lot of different things. You know, you're running a team that are, you know, organizing so much as far as the, the platform. So what is a, not that there's a normal day in the life of, of Stephanie, but uh, like, what's, what's a kind, like, how do you manage your time? What's a typical, you know, day for you? So there is no one typical day. So I kind of like, whenever I have this discussion with people, I almost do a typical week because I think that's a little bit more reflective of what I work on the week by week basis versus day by day. So in any given week, we have two main team meetings that the entire team participates in. It's something I love about Lair Hippo that with the flat organization, platform and investment team all sit in on the same meetings and add the same, you know, are really viewed as adding the same value to the firm, which is great. So our pipeline meeting is where we discuss all new investments and folks on the platform team are encouraged and welcome to bring any new deals that they might've met with or met with the founder. And then we have a partner meeting for two hours every Tuesday to discuss. And that's really where decisions are made, which I love that decisions are made out in the open in front of a group with feedback. And we encourage feedback from everyone before full decisions were made versus being made behind closed doors um, with like two partners. Um, so those two meetings definitely take up, you know, parts of my week also one-on-ones with Amanda and Natalie. So management is also part of my role. Um, and then throughout the week, I definitely live in my inbox. That is the main way founders, who I guess you could say technically are my clients, get in touch with me. So I definitely make sure I am carving out, I carve out time every morning to go through my inbox and at the end of the day, so I'm not overwhelmed the following day. Um, in addition to that, we host a lot of events. So I might be attending an event we're planning, like a CTO breakfast or a workshop. I might be going to an external event that I was invited to speak on or just invited as an attendee. I block every Wednesday um, as a no meetings day because I found that a lot of my time is spent either meeting with founders or in our portfolio or meeting with their direct reports. So whether that's a you know head of operations or chief people officer, finding ways that we can help them. I also spend a lot of time meeting with vendors. So a lot of my job is to find the best people our company should work with. So whether that's a new brand agency or a digital marketing firm or a staffing firm. So a lot of those meetings take place throughout my week. So I've actually blocked Wednesdays as a no meeting day to kind of work on higher level strategy things and big projects coming up. So that could be ever anything from our annual summit that we host every year to thinking about how we're going to build an executive in residence program. So that's a little bit of insight into my week. You got um, a lot going on. <laughs> I do, but I really think that no meeting Wednesday day has been a savior for me and has kind of helped me bring my work up to a higher level and think more long-term strategy because it's really easy, I think, to get into the weeds, especially with your inbox, especially with these phone calls and coffee meetings and lunch meetings. So um, for me, that's been a great thing that I definitely suggest to a lot of people. 
I, I'm going to adopt that practice. I, I need the one day, no meeting rule. I love that. Yeah. Um, I even, you know, some people I say, if you can't get your head around one full day, do two half days, but like really block that time for yourself and don't book over it. Now, New York, what's, uh, what's the pulse in the New York tech scene these days? New York, I, I've only ever been in the New York tech scene, so it's hard to compare. We spend a lot of time out on the West Coast with our companies, but I think New York continues to be super community-driven, and we're seeing a lot of, you know, of these sub-communities and specific sectors start to pop up. Um, I think the emergence of Cornell Tech and a lot of the programming they're doing there has been a really positive impact on the entire community. Um, I'm excited to see what, you know, if Amazon coming to town, Google continuing to expand there, how that influences kind of the talent market and these little, you know, sub communities. Um, I actually just learned of a new hardware studio that will be opening up to have hardware focused startups come build their products, get advice. So I think we're seeing a lot of these sub communities in hardware robotics start to build in New York. Um, which I think is really exciting. And I think New York continues to lead in a lot of, you know, B2B and enterprise stuff. Fifty, uh, I think it's 40 of the Fortune 500s are here in New York. So um, having their customers close to them continues to be a big benefit. So we're seeing a lot of those enterprise founders start their companies here. Um, and I think we continue to see a lot of the e-commerce companies too. So I think of Warby Parker and Casper and Glossier that are all in our portfolio who have really laid down roots here. Um, and I think we have always seen great diversity in New York. So that's diversity of people, that's diversity of backgrounds, diversity of work experiences, which I think is super exciting to see. You see people who have these long careers at whether it's beauty companies or fashion companies, and then they go and they join companies in those verticals and just add a ton of value. So I think that's something we'll always continue to see in New York. It's and no doubt that it's just so broad as far as all the different industries and sectors that uh, the startup scene is covering. It's uh, it's really impressive. Definitely. Now, what can you name two companies, of course, outside of your portfolio, because we can't have favorites that are in your portfolio, <laughs> but two companies that are on your radar right now? I like that you asked for outside the portfolio, because whenever anyone asks inside, I always say that's like picking a favorite child. Not mm -hmm. that I have children yet, but <laughs> I imagine that's super difficult to pick. Right. Um, two that I've learned about and or know about and think are great and going to do really exciting things. One of them is The Wing. So what is it? Space for Women. The Wing. The Wing, yes. I know The Wing, yes. Yes. So um, founded by Audrey Gelman. I've been to the space in New York and they're beautiful and they're so community driven and people really feel an affinity to the space. I'm really exciting to, excited to see what they do in terms of um, expanding The Wing for little ones and child care and kind of what other areas they can go into. And then another, oh God, another one, I'm trying to think. I really, I think WeWork is really exciting right now too. I think it's really exciting to see them rebrand as the We companies and kind of go into everything from not only co-working, but how we, not only how we work, how we sleep, how we exercise and kind of how that plays out across those three um, categories. So definitely that's a lot real estate focused, but those are definitely two that I'm keeping an eye on and I'm excited to see what they do. What do you like to do outside of work? I love being a tourist in my own city. I think that I don't do it enough and I wish I did it more. Um, but I 
live near a lot of the museums. I live near the park. So just spending time in and around different pockets of New York is one of my favorite things to do. Um, I also really love running and I think New York is one of the best cities to do that and kind of be on your own two feet to explore. Um, so those are definitely two of my favorite things to do outside of work. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to you know, share your background, but also to give this tremendous insight into the venture capital community. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people just wonder, like, how do I get a job in, in DC? So uh, you shared so much just great uh, information about how the firm's structured and advice and tips on how to kind of get interest and hopefully land one of those jobs. So thank you so much. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.